0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is episode 66 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities? And today's episode is going to focus on a case called U.S. versus Buster, which is a February 24th decision, 2022 decision, from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals that says that officers who frisked a guy with a backpack, had a bag strapped across his chest. When they frisked that bag and found a gun, it was unlawful to frisk that bag even though they were responding to a call for a domestic assault with a firearm discharged in the air. Now you'll hear that and you'll say that's bananas and maybe it is, Uh, but I think it's an important case to talk about. Why did the court reach this ruling and uh, if they're confused, what are they confused about? How can you prevent your cases from ending up this way? Because this is a really bad outcome. Uh, this was a convicted felon. Again, he's, uh, he's involved in domestic assault. It's a firearm discharge. Uh, they show up, they grab him, they put him in handcuffs. He's got a bag strapped to his chest. They take off the bag, they pat it down, they find the gun, and the court says that the officers did that unlawfully. So what happened and what is this all about? That's what I want to talk about with you guys today. Because the reality is you have to deal in a world where there are judges who will rule this way. And uh, how can you still effectively keep yourself safe and make sure that you, uh, you know, disarm people who are are trying to shoot people. So what happened in this case, U.S. versus Buster? Well, this is a case where, again, the defendant in this case is a convicted felon. He's got a gun. Uh, Officers respond to a 911 call of domestic assault where a firearm is discharged in the air. And officers walk up to Mr. Buster, who matches the description of the assailant, uh, and also is somebody that they had seen outside the victim's apartment earlier that evening. So there's no question here that they've got at least reasonable suspicion to detain him. When they go to detain him, he takes off on foot. So now he, he runs away. So now we definitely have reasonable suspicion, right? We uh, Officers chase after him. They capture him. Uh, they, uh, they put him on the ground, they handcuff him. And while he was running, he had a bag strapped to his body. The bag, when they put him on the ground and put handcuffs on him is actually in front of the defendant when they catch him. So they, they try to get the bag away from they try to get a bag away from eventually have to like cut it away from them. They pull it away and um, when an officer takes that bag and steps away from the defendant, he can feel the bag is hard to the touch. And the, ba- the officer says, That to me indicates to me there's a reasonable suspicion this has a weapon. Um, so while the defendant was handcuffed and on the ground, the officer nearby opens the bag, finds a gun, finds a bag of ammunition, and of course he's convicted. Mo- the defendant moves to suppress the surge. The district court, of course, moves, uh, denies the motion, and it goes to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And this is where the trouble starts. So the, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals here, the panel of the Fourth Circuit, which is three judges, rule that the doctrine allowing a frisk does not off, cover a situation where there's quote, no realistic danger to officers' safety. And that's what they thought in this case. There was no realistic danger to officer safety, and so the officers shouldn't have been authorized to pat down the bag. Why? Well, they focus on the fact that when the officer opened the defendant's bag, the defendant was handcuffed on the ground and had no access to the bag. And the court here says that the government didn't offer an explanation for how the contents of the bag presented a threat to the officer's safety and instead wrote here, uh, quickly frisking an unsecured suspect or a bag during a Terry stop is simply not the same as methodically searching the contents of a bag to which a suspect no longer has access particularly where the suspect remained restrained and under the officer's uh, physical control. And you might say, well, but the officer didn't do a full search of the bag. He just touched it. And when he, when he felt the exterior of it, he could feel immediately there was a, a hard object inside. He could feel immediately there was a, f- a handgun in it. And the court says, well, even if he did have reasonable suspicion that there was a weapon, that fact alone couldn't allow him to open the bag because there wasn't reasonable suspicion that the defendant was presently dangerous after he was already restrained and had no, long, no more access to the bag. So this is a sort of a strange ruling, right? Um, and to start with, before we delve into it, what I want to point out is how similar this ruling is to a case that we talked about uh, a few episodes ago, which was a case called Davis. So you might remember that in the summer of 2021, uh, there was a case from the U.S. Supreme Court, from, from, from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, called uh, United States versus Davis. And this was a case, uh, this is episode 49, for those of you who are avid followers, if you wanna go back and listen to it, maybe check out episode 49 if you haven't listened to it already. But this was a case where officers chased a guy into a swamp, he was carrying a backpack, and then they order him out at gunpoint, he drops the bag on the ground, they then uh, surround him, put him on the ground, put him in handcuffs, the bag is about five feet away from him somewhere else, and while the defendant is on the ground in handcuffs, another officer walks over, picks up the bag, searches it and finds a gun inside it. Now in that case, The argument was that's a search incident to arrest, and the court says, no, it's not a search incident to arrest because uh, a search incident to arrest can only allow a search of containers when the arrestee is unsecured and within reaching distance of the container at at the time of the arrest. Uh, And they analogize the case to Chimmel and to Gantt. And again, say the issue is you have to be within reaching distance or it has to be reasonable to think that the person can get access to it. Right. So again, you know, check out that stuff about Davis, but this is very similar to Davis, right? This is the same idea. Here, the defendant is on the ground in handcuffs nearby. There's an officer looking at the bag and the, the court says, oh, he can't get access to it. So there's no danger. And because there's no danger, there's no justification for a Terry pat down. So already, I'm sure your head is spinning with questions, right? Like, first of all, this is nuts. Like, what am I? So am I supposed to just give this bag back to this guy, and he's going to shoot me? Um, or you know, what about searching a car? What about you know, what about patting down a car? That's you know, this is going to raising all kinds of alarm bells for you. And what I want to start out by saying is, uh, the court itself starts to backpedal from its ruling almost immediately by saying, well, this isn't a situation where the gun is found on his person, right? Obviously, if we pat him down and we find a gun that's on his person, we can take that off. Uh, We can take that off. Um, It's not a situation where we're patting somebody down who's not handcuffed and on the ground yet. Maybe we're searching a bag before he's been subdued. Um, Maybe we're searching a bag while the person's still in reach of the bag. We're not covering that situation either. That might be a different situation. And again, you might be saying to yourself, well, am I supposed to just give this bag back to this guy and get shot? And the court says, well, no, we're not rendering an opinion about whether you could uh, pat it down or search it before you give it back to him. Uh, if that was the situation. Uh, This is only the question of at the moment that he's on the ground in handcuffs surrounded by officers, and there's another officer nearby with a bag, at that very moment, is it lawful to open the bag? And, you know, here, the court is being very specific about the timing. And notice they were the same way in Davis, right? Here you have the same kind of really laser focus on the timing of the search, a search that might be lawful one minute before or even one minute after, isn't lawful at the very minute that it takes place. So uh, if you're listening to your car, you're probably screaming. Uh, So do me a favor and and take a deep breath. Everybody let's breathe together. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's the real impact of this ruling and let's put it in context of Fourth Amendment law generally. Uh, because once we look at what the Supreme Court and the Virginia courts have said about this, I think we're going to see we're a little bit on better ground uh, in the future and maybe this case isn't such a disaster after all. To start with, you know if you're let's take a look at Michigan versus Long. Now this is a classic case from the US Supreme Court from 1983. And this case is a, deals with a situation where uh, you have a pat down of a vehicle. So the biggest compartment or container that you can imagine, right? You're doing a traffic stop. You get a person out of the car. You believe the person may be armed. You obviously have lawful authority to frisk that person. You also, in the course of that traffic stop, have the lawful authority to frisk the area to which they could reach inside of the vehicle. So let's say you have a backup officer there, and the backup officer is watching the person that you have detained in your traffic stop, and you're gonna go pat down the vehicle you might stop and say to yourself, well, hold on a second here, this case says that guy doesn't have access to the car, right? He's not presently dangerous. So where do I get the authority to pat down the car if he's outside the car? This case seems to say, I can't pat down cars anymore. Well, the fourth circuit can't overrule the Supreme Court. And Michigan versus Long was a 1983 case. It has had a lot of impact in the United States um, since it was decided. And there've been lots of cases covering you know things like uh, purses and bags and so on um us versus williams was a 1992 case from the sixth circuit where there was a passenger inside of a car Um, they had reasonable suspicion to believe that the person was involved in drug distribution and so uh, the passenger had a frit had a purse and the court in that case the, the sixth circuit in that case allowed the uh, officers to pat down not just the pa- the, dr- the the passenger but also pat down the purse to see if it had a weapon in it. There have been lots of other cases like that, some of which we'll talk about today. But you know, there's U.S. versus Mohammed, which is a pat down of a gym bag. That's a, a 2006 case from the uh, Second Circuit, um, the Seventh Circuit. U.S. versus Adamson is a pat down of a pillowcase bundle. Um, U.S. versus Holmes, you know, all these other cases. Have held, have 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 construed long to allow searches like this to happen. So let's take a look at long. Right, um, long again is a driver. He's he's stopped for a traffic violation. He's just erratic driving. He appears to be intoxicated. Um, officers uh, get him out of the car and they go back to frisk the vehicle while he's outside the car with a second officer. And the court says. Uh, Terry does is not restricted to simply prevent searching the person, the actual person of the detained person. Right, um, suspects the court writes here can injure police officers by virtue of access to weapon, even though they may not have the weapon directly on their person. So in Long. The here the court says, the court. Uh, and this is the U.S. Supreme Court writing, in this case, officers did not act unreasonably in taking preventive measures to ensure that there were no other weapons within Long's immediate grasp before permitting him to reenter the vehicle. Now, in Long, it's interesting because the Michigan Supreme Court makes a very similar argument to what uh, judge Haytons argues in the Fourth Circuit case, in, in, in the Buster case, right? So Judge Haytons, um, who's a very new judge, he's only become a Fourth Circuit judge uh, in the last few months. Uh, he's very young. He only graduated from law school, I think, in 2000. Um, so he may not himself have read Long, uh, but if he had, he would have seen that the Michigan Supreme Court kind of said what he said, uh, that it was not reasonable for the officers to fear that Long could injure him injure them because he was effectively under their control during the investigative stop and could not get access to any weapons that might have been located in the vehicle. But the US Supreme Court in Long rejects uh, Judge Hayton's argument and rejects what the Michigan Supreme Court says. They say, and this is, I'm quoting from the US Supreme Court here, this reasoning is mistaken in several respects. Uh, just as a Terry suspect on the street may, despite being under the brief control of a police officer, reach into his clothing and retrieve a weapon, so might a Terry suspect in Long's position break away from the police control and retrieve a weapon from his automobile. And also the court observes if the suspect is not placed under arrest, of course, then he would be permitted to re-enter his vehicle and then he would have access to weapons inside. Uh, or again, the suspect may be permitted to re-enter the vehicle before the Terry investigation is over and again could a- get access to weapons. Uh, the danger here again is that it's a close range police investigation where the officer remains particularly vulnerable because a full custodial rec- arrest has not been affected. And so the court writes, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court writes, the officer must make a quick decision as how to protect himself and others from possible danger. And in such circumstances, we have not required officers to adopt alternative means to assure their safety in order to avoid the intrusion involved in a Terry encounter. So uh, what does that mean for us in this case, right? Uh, we Going back to this Buster case and this ruling from the Fourth Circuit, um, what has the Fourth Circuit itself said in similar situations? I mean, it, it can't be that the Fourth Circuit doesn't know about Michigan versus Long, right? Well, let's go back to the time of Michigan versus Long. Let's go back to 1984 in a case called U.S. versus Littman. Uh, this is a Fourth Circuit case. It's a case out of Baltimore where the defendant uh, was, again, involved in drug distribution. He was carrying a shoulder bag and a shopping bag, and the officers tell him to come up to arrest, uh, to, to take him into custody. They say, drop the bags, get your hands against the wall, and the officers go to frisk him. And uh, when they go to frisk him, they find a bunch of contraband in the bags. The court here says while they're taking him into custody, the defendant dropped the bags as he was ordered. But the bags were still clearly within the area in which the defendant might have reached to grab a weapon or an item of evidence. And so here the court says the warrantless search of the shoulder bag that was on the ground was lawful. And this case, again, is an older case. It kind of goes into it started crossing over into the territory of that Davis case, too, that we talked about from the summer. Right. And Davis was a search incident to arrest case uh, where, again, the Fourth Circuit said, oh, he didn't have access to the bag because he was on the ground in handcuffs. Um, but here again, the analysis is the same. The court kind of says it's both a frisk and a search incident to arrest. But either way, a frisk or a search incident to was OK because he still had access to the bag, even though he was Uh, the bags were on the ground, he was standing up, the officers were taking him into custody, they could pat it down. So uh, how have courts dealt with situations where you've got people carrying bags, right? Uh, Here's another case from the Fourth Circuit, more recently uh, from 2010, and it's a case called U.S. versus Hernandez-Mendez. In this case, uh, the defendant was carrying a purse. And the court, the officer takes the purse away from Ms. Hernandez-Mendez, pats down the purse and finds a handgun. Here, the Fourth Circuit, now this is the same Fourth Circuit. It's different judges, right? Justice uh, Judge Haytons at this point um, has only graduated law school from a couple years before, so he's not on the Fourth Circuit yet. This is different judges of the Fourth Circuit, but it's the same court, right? Fourth Circuit says the distinction between a pat-down of Ms. Hernandez-Mendez's clothing and a pat-down of her purse wasn't meaningful in this place. They were both lawful. At the time that she was detained, uh, she was wearing a tank top, shirt, and shorts, and she was carrying a purse. And so given the nature of her clothing, uh, we had reasonable suspicion to believe that she had a weapon. There were few places she could conceal a weapon other than her purse. And so it was objectively reasonable to frisk her purse in addition to her person. Um, And so when the officer takes the purse away from her and feels what he immediately recognizes to be a weapon, just like in the Buster case, right, um, the officer had the authority to open up the bag and seize the weapon, right? He had reasonable suspicion that justified the frisk of the purse. So really interesting, right? Almost exactly the same facts as Buster. So what's different, right? How could you distinguish Hernandez-Mendez from Buster if it's the same court uh, applying the same rule? Well, here in Hernandez-Mendez, she's standing up and the officer is by himself. um, So that's different. Uh, And, you know, in Michigan versus Long, uh, Mr. Long was also standing up. He had a cover officer watching him while the other officer checked the car, Um, you know. But like in the Davis case, uh, Mr. Buster is on the ground in handcuffs face down and police are covering him. You know, I've said before, and I think it's this case really is a good time to re- repeat it, though, that the Fourth Circuit doesn't control what we do in Virginia. Um, the Fourth Circuit is a federal court, and it is a federal court that covers Virginia. And if you're somebody who goes to federal court or is thinking about bringing your case to federal court, then, yeah, the Fourth Circuit matters. The Fourth Circuit controls. They decide what the law is in federal court. And you might be in a jurisdiction where you depend upon the federal courts, to prosecute your firearm by felon cases, maybe because your your local courts, your local commons attorney don't doesn't prosecute those cases, or uh, you don't get the same results, or they're just, you know, you bring them to trial and juries just acquit people because they feel like it. Um, so you have to take those cases to federal court for some reason. And in those cases, yeah, this is a big deal. This case is a big deal. But the Fourth Circuit doesn't tell the Virginia courts how to make decisions. And for most of you who are listening to this podcast, you're going to Virginia courts and the Virginia Court of Appeals and the Virginia Supreme Court are the courts that review your decisions. Uh, And we know, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have your back because we've heard what the court says in Michigan versus law. But I want to take a moment and sort of say, okay, well, what if this case had happened in a Virginia court? What would be the ruling of a Virginia court? Well, Obviously, uh, the Virginia courts are aware of Michigan versus Long and would probably read it. A great example of what a court might do is a case called Jones versus Commonwealth. Uh, Now, Jones versus Commonwealth is uh, an older case. It's a case from, well, not much older case, but it's a case from 2008. Uh, And in 2008, um, Jones has a zippered bag. So Jones is stopped in a traffic stop and Jones, they have reasonable suspicion to believe that Jones has got a weapon. So let's put that aside, because uh, we'll assume that for the argument. But Jones gets out of the car, he's got this bag, and he tosses the bag on the front seat. An officer then, the officers obviously separate him from the bag, and um, the office, an officer walks over and picks up the bag, and as soon as he picks it up, he could feel something hard inside. Um, He wasn't sure, but he believed he had reasonable suspicion that it was a gun. Um, It was a hard object. He opens it up, and it turns out not to be a gun. It turns out to be a digital scale, uh, a container of cocaine, uh, and some marijuana. So here again, very similar facts to the Buster case. That's our reason for talking today. Although here Jones is standing up and Buster again is on the ground in handcuffs. Uh, but again, he's got a bag and he throws it on the, the, the seat. We think he's got a gun. We, we open it up. We pat it down. It's got a hard object here. We don't find a gun, but we find contraband. So in very similar facts, what does a Virginia court rule in, uh, in 2008? Well, here... Jones had argued it was unreasonable for police to open the bag uh, because um, here he was separate from the bag and and, and it didn't have a gun in it. But the court here quotes Michigan versus Long and says police officers may, when they possess reasonable articulable suspicion that a person is presently or potentially dangerous, they may conduct a protective search of the area within the suspect's immediate control. It doesn't matter that the search was of a closed container. Uh, a valid search uh, under Michigan versus Long extends to closed containers, such as a pouch, that are found within the vehicle's passenger compartment, and the court here uh, then focuses, I think, on what makes what makes them come out differently here than Buster. And up until now, I haven't focused specifically on this, but what what gets the Buster court all hung up? Uh, how can we end up in this ruling? Well. When the Buster Court, and I've kind of, you know, we haven't gone directly into this, but when the Buster Court goes, uh, reads the Terry case, it focuses and then also focuses, I think you will see this language in Long as well, on the fact whether the suspect is dangerous and may gain immediate control of weapons. And that's where I think the Buster Court gets hung up. Right? Again, they hold that a doctrine authorizing a limited warrantless search to officer safety can't be stretched to cover situations where there's no realistic danger to officer safety, they write, in other words, where the, op- where the person could not gain immediate control of the weapon. Um, so if you look back at the Jones case, the case from the U- Virginia Court of Appeals from 2008, Here, the court says, the record before us proves the bag was within Jones's immediate control. The bag was big enough to contain a weapon, and the uh, officer did feel a hard object within it. Jones has some really strong language here, which, again, I think echoes what Michigan versus Long is really about. The Jones court here writes, it would defeat the purpose of a protective pat-down search to require a police officer, who seizes a closed container during a pat-down search on the reasonable suspicion that it contained a weapon to return the container unexamined simply because it is neither a weapon nor evidence of crime. Police officers need not risk a shot in the back by returning containers which they reasonably suspect contain dangerous weapons but may lack probable cause to seize. And that's pretty strong language. Note by the way, that the Fourth Circuit doesn't disagree with that statement. And in other words, here, Judge Hayton's, in his opinion, doesn't say police officers should risk being shot in the back. Uh, we think that there's no reason to, to give to um, to pat down the bag at all. Here, the court says the Fourth Circuit says, well, we're not addressing what would happen if the officers were in a position to then hand the bag back to the person. We're just saying at the moment that the officer opened the bag, well, Mr, uh, Buster was on the ground in handcuffs, there wasn't reasonable position, uh, there wasn't authority, excuse me, there wasn't authority to open the bag because he didn't have access to the bag. Um, Jones though says, well, we're not giving the bag back to him without checking it first. So could we have reasonable position that he's armed. So this is idiotic, right? Of course, we're gonna open this bag up before we give him access to it again. Um, and there's a, there's a similar kind of argument here again um, in, in Littman, right? And in Littman, this is the case um, from the Fourth Circuit from 1984. Again, the court goes back to saying, look, he's, he still has access to it. He could still grab it even at the time. Another good case to look at on this uh, when sort of asking the question, how would, a, how would a Virginia court look at a similar situation is an older case called Glover versus Commonwealth. And this is a case from 1986. Uh, it's a case from the city of Alexandria. involves an officer. Uh, I actually worked with this officer briefly. It's an officer named Horvath, who's a very good police officer, um, and he stops a person again on reasonable suspicion uh, that the person was engaged in robbery. So very similar to Terry, um, and he calls for a second officer to show up to watch over. Mr. Glover, while the officer searches, pats down the car under Michigan versus Long. So here's a case from 1986. Almost exactly the same facts as Michigan versus Long. Uh, almost exactly the same situation as Michigan versus Long. Uh, again, Mr. Glover is being watched by a second officer. Officer Horvath is going inside the vehicle. He's got reasonable suspicion to believe that the suspect is armed and he's gonna go find, see if he can find a gun and he does. He finds a gym bag inside, uh, inside the vehicle. He opens the gym bag and finds a 44 Magnum pistol and extra ammunition inside the bag. And the court here again says circumstances in this case support a conclusion. He had a reasonable s- belief that, the, that Glover may have been armed and dangerous and a reasonable belief that he may have been armed and presently dangerous if he were allowed to go back into the car. Right. It's nighttime. There's two police officers here. Uh, and the officer, you know, had a reasonable belief that Glover had access to that gun, even though he's outside the car, even though he's being watched by a cover officer. And they note that Horvath, he, sub, he, he restricted his search to the area to where Glover would have access inside the car. Um, but here, you know, Glover argued, just like Judge Haytons argued in the uh, Buster case that we're talking about today, uh, that it was uh, not reasonable for the officer to fear for his safety because Glover wasn't in the car at the time and he was effectively under police control at the time that the search was conducted but the court says no that's not a, that's not a valid argument uh, look at michigan versus long the michigan versus long defendant also was standing outside the car being watched by a cover officer he hadn't even been frisked at the time that the officers were going inside the car um, here the court again quotes the long case just as an off- Terry suspect on the street may despite being under brief control of a police officer reach into his clothing and retrieve a weapon so might a, a Terry suspect in this position break away from police control and retrieve a weapon from his vehicle? If the suspect is not placed under arrest, obviously he could go back inside the car uh, and get to the weapon. And again, the officer is particularly vulnerable because we do not have a full custodial arrest. So, what do we? So, how do we read Buster then? How, what's the? What's? Uh, where does Buster sort of fit into? our understanding of Terry pat-downs. Well, I think the first thing to note is how similar Buster is to the case that we talked about this summer in episode 49, which is the U.S. versus Davis case. Um, Just like in Davis, Mr. Buster is on the ground, surrounded by officers. He's in handcuffs. Uh, He's not going anywhere. He's not even standing up. And just like in Davis, the court's really fixated on this idea that he he's completely immobilized, which is I think pretty unlike most of your Terry stops. Right, most of your Terry stops, where you're patting somebody down. Somebody's going to be standing up. Uh, if you look back at the uh, Hernandez-Mendez case where the officer passed down the purse, or if you look at the Littman case where the officer's taking him into custody and they've got him against the wall and he's dropping his bags to the ground, uh, even if you look back at Michigan versus Long, all those people were ambulatory. And just like with Davis, we compared, in that podcast, Davis to other cases like Farabee, where Mr. Farabee, they searched his backpack and he was standing up and they thought that was okay. And even if you have somebody on the ground, um, I think, you know, here, what could you articulate That i think is so important and that buster sort of doesn't they say well we're not we're not we're not looking at that because that wasn't argued in this case right Um, there's a case that i talked about in the podcast about davis a case called shakir where a guy's laying on the ground there's two officers one officer's got shakir on the ground one officer's a cover officer there's a big crowd around and the court says look just because he's on the ground doesn't mean that he's not able he couldn't get access to the bag there's a big crowd of people and if any of these people in the crowd step forward or start Uh, interfering with the investigation, the cover officer, has his attention is going to be drawn away and there's going to be a danger, right? So what's the takeaway? I think Buster here is really about articulation. Um, What do you need to articulate and how do you need to articulate the danger posed by somebody having a bag? How would Buster be different, ask yourself, if the officer had said, look, our plan was to get him up off the ground. And if we gave him up off the ground, we were going to have to give him the bag back. I knew I was going to have to hand him his bag back because we weren't placing him under arrest at that point. Before I handed him the bag back, though, I wanted to check it for weapons. There it would fit squarely within Michigan versus law. Um, there was only a couple of officers there and we had him on the ground, but we were concerned he had already run away. Uh, he could easily have gotten free. There was other people in the neighborhood um, and we were concerned that he could still get access to the bag. We were going to stand him up. Before we stood him up, uh, at which point he would have just been you know, a couple of us and he would have been able to get free, we wanted to make sure before we stood him up uh, that we had checked that bag because there was only a couple of us there and we knew he'd been involved in this shooting. So it was a very dangerous situation. I think there, it would fit squarely within uh, Jones versus Commonwealth. It would fit squarely within Glover versus Commonwealth. But we don't have that in this case. And the court, again, the Fourth Circuit sort of says, well, those would be different arguments and we're not addressing those arguments today. We're kind of dodging it. Is the Fourth Circuit still making a mistake here? Yeah. I mean, is this wrongly decided? yeah probably i mean if you look at michigan versus long itself michigan versus long pretty squarely rejects the argument that the court makes in buster but uh if you're going to be effective on the street i think the lesson is in the nowadays with judges being the way they are like the judge here in this case you're going to have to be very careful about your articulation why did you pat this down what was your concern that the person was going to re enter the car, that they were going to be able to have access to the car. There was only a couple of you there. That based on their behavior, you felt like even though they were being watched or restrained or in handcuffs, they were still potentially dangerous. Uh, so, Buster, I think, is about articulation, which so many of these cases are. And that's the takeaway that I think you, I hope you take away from today, is uh, articulating yourself in view of these other cases. So, for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. Uh, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts, we're on SoundCloud, Stitcher. If you're looking for me to be another app, let me know. If you have ideas for future episodes, please let me know. I hopefully uh, can cover some other things that are interesting to you. I hope today was useful. Uh, but that's it. That's all from me for today. Stay safe and don't get captured.